Peter Dang has worked on most of Facebook's major products. Newsfeed, Instagram, Oculus, and Messenger. These different products have different requirements, but they're all part of the same ethos of connecting people through social networking. Facebook is a consumer product company that is powered by a strong engineering workforce. The relationship between product managers and engineering are two parts of a three-legged relationship, product, engineering, and design. Every major product within Facebook is built with the teamwork of product, engineering, and design. After almost 10 years at Facebook, Peter joined Uber as the head of Rider. At Uber, Peter works on a very different platform, a real-world, two-sided marketplace. Every change to the Uber platform has an impact on the economic relationship between riders and drivers. This creates a set of product development constraints that contrast with the social network of Facebook. Peter joins the show to describe how he thinks about product management and how the core competencies of a business inform product strategy. If you're building a software project, post it on Find Collabs. Find Collabs is the company I'm working on. It's a place to find collaborators for your software projects. We integrate with GitHub and make it easy for you to collaborate with others on your open source projects and find people to work with who have shared interests so that you can actually build software with other people rather than building your software by yourself. Find Collabs is not only for open source software, it's also a great place to collaborate with other people on low code or no code projects or find a side project if you're a product manager or somebody who doesn't like to write code. Check it out at findcollabs.com. This podcast is brought to you by PagerDuty. You've probably heard of PagerDuty. Teams trust PagerDuty to help them deliver high-quality digital experiences to their customers. With PagerDuty, teams spend less time reacting to incidents and more time building software. Over 12,000 businesses rely on PagerDuty to identify issues and opportunities in real time and bring together the right people to fix problems faster and prevent those problems from happening again. PagerDuty helps your company's digital operations run more smoothly. PagerDuty helps you intelligently pinpoint issues like outages as well as capitalize on opportunities, empowering teams to take the right, real-time action. To see how companies like GE, Vodafone, Box, and American Eagle rely on PagerDuty to continuously improve their digital operations, visit PagerDuty.com. I'm really happy to have PagerDuty as a sponsor. I first heard about them on a podcast probably more than five years ago, and so it's quite satisfying to have them on Software Engineering Daily as a sponsor. I've been hearing about their product for many years, and I hope you check it out at pagerduty.com. Peter Dang, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. You were at Facebook from 2007 until 2017. Yep. You worked on most of the company's main products. You worked on Instagram, Oculus, Newsfeed, Messenger, everything. What is the long-term vision for Facebook? My information might be a little bit dated now being out of the company for two years, but 
I have a huge amount of respect for the, the leaders, what they're doing on Facebook. It really is about making the world more open and connected, at least when I was there. That was the vision. And looking at things now, there's a lot of focus on community, which I think is just super cool, right? And even for me, some of the most meaningful interactions I have now are on groups, right? And groups of people with uh, common interests. My wife's a part of a lot of like mom's groups, which is really awesome. And so I, I just think that Facebook has really cracked this nut about how do we take real world interactions and then just bring them to uh, the digital world in a way that really scales. So I think that's pretty cool. How does the company's long-term vision affect the day-to-day work of a product manager? Well, when I was there, we on product worked very closely with design and engineering to just take this vision that this bold vision that Mark had and find ways to just kind of inch our way towards it every single day, right? What's really cool is for all the engineers in the room and and for me, I've always just loved building things, whether it was just Lego stuff when I was little or making little model trains, like it was always really cool to create and to have this direction that the company was going towards of like taking, you know, real world interactions and how do you digitize them and make them scale. It was cool to see every single day we'd come to work and be like, well, what is the feature that we'd be able to build today? What can we design today? that takes this thing that we do in real life, whether it's just acknowledging each other's comments by nodding, how do we make it a little bit more lightweight? So teams worked on adding a like button, for example, or on Messenger, we would add different ways of sending messages, like adding the the like button uh, as a quick response, right? So what we did as PMs, working with the engineering lead and the designers was just taking a look at what tools do we have at our disposal and how do we build an interface and build a feature that gets us closer to that vision. There's that famous quote about Apple where people say the best product that the company ever built was the company itself. Do you think that applies to Facebook? I'm not sure if I'm in a position to answer that question. I think that the culture at Facebook is something I look back uh, on it with great fondness, just the amount of openness and the open dialogue inside the company. It's really special to, to be there. And recently, I think last week, Mark released the internal Q&As and he, did a, he released that in live stream that and watching it just made me really see just like, wow, like that is, that's the company I remember. It's very transparent. Mark tells how he feels and it's just really cool to see that culture still, still intact today. Do you feel like the engineers at Facebook are there to serve the product managers or is it more like the product managers are there to serve the engineers or is it? I think it's a really deep partnership. So again, at Facebook, we always thought of product design and engineering as the three legs of the stool. Right. And we worked very closely together. There was always, for every project when I was there, there was always a, a design lead, an engineering lead, uh, and a product manager. And it, we didn't really go very far without each other, right? We, we kept in sync. We shared ideas together. We planned roadmaps together. I feel like each of those three disciplines had a really equal, you know, kind of seat at the table. And that's what really made it super magical. And that's how I just like to work with engineering teams and, and design teams. And that's kind of the way that I've learned uh, how to build product. And I think that partnership is, is a tremendously uh, important in, in building anything. Among those those three roles, design, product, and engineering, are one of those roles devoted to being the person that gathers data from the users or gathers data from the customers and creates the the dashboards and the the actual metrics that are coming in or is that like do you need to have a data scientist on the team as yeah, well yeah we had we had analytics data analytics kind of help with those those dashboards but i think that 
I mean, the way that it worked was, you know, if you had a particular question about how something worked, you could either do the digging yourself or work with a data analyst to pull that data. But what I was trying to say about the way we worked was the ideas about what to investigate or the ideas of what to do or what to build, they came from sort of any of those three functions or any function at all within Facebook. Um, and that level of collaboration was what made it really magical. How did Facebook's internal tools change your job as a product manager there? What's interesting is that one thing that was super awesome about Facebook, and this is just sort of me reminiscing, we ran our company kind of on what the public knows as workplace. So it was really efficient to have groups be the center of product development or just building things in general. And what's awesome about groups is that they are opt-in conversations. Right, so you get a notification for the first post in, for a post in a group, but you don't get the subsequent replies unless you subscribe to it or comment on it. Right, and what's really interesting about this model is that it gives you a bunch of ambient awareness of what's happening within the company. You can see posts surface in the newsfeed, etc. But you know you would only truly engage in something that is something that is, is relevant to your work. Right, so that kind of I would say that hack on a communicate a traditional communications tool. It's not the same as a mailing list on email, right? Where replies all reply alls are the same level of interrupt as a new message. Right. This is more about like letting you kind of filter into the conversation streams that you're really interested in. So I think that was really special about how we built product at Facebook. I don't know much about workplace, but as far as I understand, there are both notifications and messages. So it's in that way, it it's fairly different from Slack because you think about Slack, there's only one type of thing you can receive. Right. And I think that might be why some people feel like they're totally drowning in Slack messages. Yeah. Well, to be honest, I'm not a Slack user, so I can't really comment on that. But the way that we used it at Facebook was when you needed to get someone's attention about a certain topic one-on-one, -on -one, and that was the the medium you wanted to use, you use messages, right? And when it came to be about like posting some new designs and getting feedback on them or sharing some results of a test, they would go in the groups because people can join in and kind of dive deeper, ask questions on a specific topic, right? And that was, that was kind of how we used those tools at Facebook. Uber uses the, it's like a Mattermost fork, right? The UChat? Thing. Yeah, there's uh, UChat we use internally, and we also use a lot of email. And Google Hangouts is another sort of medium we use. What do you think of this like idea that email should be killed? And it's, email is a fundamentally flawed experience for the workplace. Well, you know, it's it's funny because I thought a lot about this at Facebook because we thought a lot about communication, different sort of media that's out there. And every one of these tools has a set of dimensions that they kind of excel at. And they, they're positioned in a certain way that lends itself to a, a certain sort of uh, use case. I guess, you know, let's just talk about email. Email is permanent, right-ish. It's also easily forkable and forwardable, right? And just that slight dis, uh, difference in terms of the forkability makes groups, Facebook groups, a little bit different, right? So you always know that the the audience for the group, for any post that you have in the group, is are all the members of the group today and anyone who may be associated with that group in the future, right? So what email lists are really difficult, uh, make it really difficult is, you know, if you're a new person trying to ramp up on a team, 
you know, you can't really go back and have, you know, scan the all the past messages as easily as you could scan scan a group, right? Another thing about a group is because of the way the dynamics work of things that are, you know, sometimes more recently commented on or liked start to bubble up to the top, it helps curate kind of the information flow a little bit. And again, email is really kind of this old school, like uh, primitive tool that it's very widespread, but it, it has a lot of gaps that make it kind of a little bit harder to consume. So I'm not sure if it should be killed, but I do think that there are a lot of shortcomings with email that other technologies like Slack and, and Facebook Workplace are trying to serve. How have you avoided getting buried in notifications and messages when you've worked at these companies where there's just so much information to triage? Yeah, I think it's a personal struggle that I think everyone deals with, right? And I think well, the way I dealt with it was I just turned off notifications, to be honest. Like for me, I want to be very intentional about my work. So there's time that I sit down after dinner, after the kids go down, that I'll just go through my email and, and triage it. But it's not the right, you know, I you know Gmail always asks me like, oh, do you want to get notifications? I'm like, no, there's, there's no world in which I want to get notified for this stuff. Uh, it's really important uh, to kind of curate how you receive the information that is coming at you to just stay sane, honestly. So you only have notifications for messages, SMS? Pretty much, yeah. Right. What about uh, for like the, you know, the UChat or the Slack kind of? Yeah, when things are directed at me, I do want to make sure that I get them. I want to make sure there's a channel that people can reach me. And for me, that's actually Gchat. That's that's the way that at work that uh, people can reach me at, but kind of interrupt me. And that is the same level of interrupt for me as an SMS, as, as an example. But things like email, they can wait. I have a ton of filters on my email that helps me kind of manage when I'm in a mood to, you know, context switch into some certain topic and be able to kind of keep my mind focused without having to pay that switching cost from message to message to message. And that really helps me out of bench. One of the reasons I'm asking about the messaging and communication stuff is I don't have a whole lot of understanding for what the tool set and the day-to-day life of a product person mm, looks like. Interesting. I, my only experience is I worked as an engineer at Amazon. That was the only place I've worked where there was I had close interaction with a product person. And that product person was in spreadsheets all the time. That was the tool they used was spreadsheets and then instant messenger and that's based in email. And that's that's the only interaction I saw with them. What are the other tools that you use? I think it depends on the team you're working on and the needs of that team and also the kind of level you're operating at in terms of are you down into the task management side of things or are you working on broader strategy as a PM? And as you go through the development cycle, you will just approach different phases with different tools, right? So I would say, you know, straight up documents like Google Docs is where you would start if you're drafting up a strategy right or putting out thoughts on how you might focus in 2020 and inviting people to come comment on it right that is a way to present again in that medium you're able to present a it's long form it's it's uh you can structure it in however you whatever way it makes sense you can frame up the problem and the comments make it really easy for people to ask questions along the way or you know and for you to fork the conversation and manage a bunch of things uh, independently all the way down to, you know, as you get down to the execution mode, I remember using sort of our version of, of we had an internal tool called tasks that was all about how do you task up all the things that need to be done for a certain milestone, 
right? So depending on the f stage of the product development cycle you're in, I think PMs will just use different tools, right? But strategy starts with docs and all the way down to kind of, you know, task management tools. In your last 12, 13 years, has there been any tool that has really changed product management that much? I mean, there's there are a few of them. I think you know, we use Coda a lot internally now. What's Coda? I can't give you the accurate pitch. I think you have to kind of look it up and help tell your listeners a bit. But the way it works is it's it's essentially the way I see it is it allows a person managing a ton of information work to list out projects, tasks, and just define arbitrary fields. It's almost like a it's like think of it like a spreadsheet, right? And with that, you can put interfaces on top of it, like a form if you want to intake requirements, or if you want to take a look at how uh, the Gantt chart looks, it can turn a bunch of the tasks into a timeline. It helps kind of mark, you can mark things uh, as like red, uh, yellow, or or green in terms of uh, status. So it's, it's, it's a way to track a bunch of, I guess, knowledge work that seems to work really well for our, our internal uses as, at, at Uber, right? So we use, we use that a lot. Figma has been something that's been really awesome to see evolve. In the past, man, we were sharing like PowerPoint files or just PNGs right and left on email, which was pretty horrible. Now we can just go walk through a presentation, zoom in and, and look at sort of designs and it enables anyone, it kind of de democratizes that idea generation. You can take components and you can remix them, which is really interesting. Uh, personally, I'm involved in Asana a little bit. Uh, I'm friends with the, the folks over there. Honestly, I use Asana at home to manage my own uh, my own personal tasks and the tasks kind of within our household. So I think there's a ton of tools that kind of have popped up where it's trying to organize a bunch of the information a lot better. Looking for a job is painful. And if you are in software and you have the skill set needed to get a job in technology, it can sometimes seem very strange that it takes so long to find a job that's a good fit for you. Vettery is an online hiring marketplace that connects highly qualified workers with top companies. Vettery keeps the quality of workers and companies on the platform high because Vettery vets both workers and companies. Access is exclusive, and you can apply to find a job through Vettery by going to vettery.com slash sedaily. That's V-E-T-T-E-R-Y dot com slash sedaily. Once you're accepted to Vettery, you have access to a modern hiring process. You can set preferences for location, experience level, salary requirements, and other parameters, so that you only get job opportunities that appeal to you. No more of those recruiters sending you blind messages that say they are looking for a Java rock star with 35 years of experience who's willing to relocate to Antarctica. We all know that there is a better way to find a job. So check out vettery.com slash sedaily and get a $300 sign-up bonus if you accept a job through Vettery. Vettery is changing the way people get hired and the way that people hire. So check out vettery.com slash sedaily and get a $300 sign-up bonus if you accept a job through Vettery. That's v-e-t-t-e-r-y dot com slash sedaily. Thank you to Vettery for being a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. And it seems like if I were to look five years into the future, assuming Facebook for work comes to market completely, 
It seems like that's the only fully integrated, opinionated workplace experience. And you, if you think about the the, the divergences of of, of uh, workplace stacks, yeah. like the Facebook for work one, that's going to be the opinionated, unified Mac OS of work systems. And then the the other the alternative is you're piecing together Asana and uh, you know, Figma and Slack, or, Slack, yeah, whatever. Yeah, you think yeah. that's an accurate depiction? I, I really like the word you used, opinionated. I think that it's really true. I think that a lot of tools, if you boil it down to it, they're just like databases, right? And, you know, with any database, it requires a lot of work to distill any kind of meaningful insights from it. But I think, again, I, I'm biased because I, I use Workplace or the equivalent of Workplace at, at, at Facebook before. It just had this aura about the product that felt like it was mirroring real life, right? Like, I'll give you an example. I think that, you know, if you're new to a team and you kind of want to catch up on all the all the data or all the relevant information recently or in the past, you know, getting into a new group on, 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 in, in a workplace, you can just scroll back and just like, just take it all in. You can just read, like, you can see, wow, like, that was a test that they did. Wow, click through the comments. What are people saying? What were the discussions like? The way that the product takes the information that's being shared and just naturally surfaces or kind of suppresses things that are more or less important is just really cool. The other thing about Workplace that's awesome is this idea of ambient awareness, right? You can be in a bunch of different groups. You can either get notified for them or not, but being able to just sit in your feed and be like, oh yeah, this is what, you know, so-and-so just joined the team. There's an announcement for the company. This idea of like being able to get information curated through this and filtered so that's relevant to you, I think it's super powerful and you're right. It's opinionated, right? It's not just a database, but it actually starts to start to curate and present information that uh, may be most relevant to your work. So I think that that's an accurate statement. I, I would agree with that. Look, I run a two-person organization, yeah. and the number of times where we've had to do a Slack integration with GitHub or Dropbox or this or that or QuickBooks integration or this integration or that integration, we are in this like integration apocalypse kind of for for people who are setting up small businesses or let alone large organizations i mean look at okta right okta is like the point of integration it's like the entire company is built around integration so the idea that there is at least a unified alternative is 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 appeal it's an appealing future so if you if you think about what makes the facebook work opinion what goes into that i mean that's part of the the goal of doing this series is like the latent assumption in Silicon Valley that that Facebook is just kind of a carbon copy of the Microsoft organization or the Google organization or this organization or that organization, it's not true, right? There's something unique about how the company works. What is that? What makes the company's product organization and people management system unique? I think the culture at Facebook is really special. I think that, like I said before, there's a lot of just inherent transparency and just truth-telling and being open about what you're working on. I'll interview candidates today that, you know, come from companies where I just, I just talked to someone on Friday who said, wow, like, I want to be at a company like Uber that just feels like you can share data across the company more freely. And I'm, I'm just shocked that data in some companies isn't shared freely, right? And I think that, you know, when you have that as a cornerstone of this idea that you can be transparent and that you're you will be a better person and the the company is a better person when uh, it's a company is a better organization when people are freely sharing their ideas 
the data of what's ha- the truth of what's happening, etc. That I think is a really powerful unlock for any organization. And I think that you know I I don't know what the adoption of face uh, of workplace is like outside of, of Facebook. I never worked on that team, right? I'm just looking at it for someone who just deeply was integrated into that a company that had workplace as its primary tool. It was I thought it was extremely efficient in in getting us to come up with better ideas because we all had better understanding of what was happening in the company and, and on the teams. It's the way that the information is just naturally curated through the feed and, and through the groups that just makes it, I think, just that much more powerful. So you worked on, you joined Instagram, I think, in 2013, and that was like a, a, about a year after the company was acquired. Later on, you joined the Oculus team. When you joined those companies that were new properties within Facebook, did you look at that as an opportunity to experiment with a product that was off-brand from Facebook, so you could potentially do things that are off-brand? Or did you look at it as an opportunity or a necessity to quickly integrate the product with the product ethos of Facebook? It was definitely not the latter. I think when we looked at those, uh, when I joined Instagram, it was definitely about taking a look at what Mike and Kevin had built and how do we take the best of what Facebook has to offer to help that scale, right? So I'll give you an example. There was an effort that on the engineering side of how do we integrate into the Facebook's backend just to make things a little bit more fluid. That was a great example of like leveraging Facebook's sort of capabilities to build a better product for, for, for the customers. So it was not at all that ethos of what you're saying in terms of assimilation. It was just how do we build the best product for the customers and take everything that Facebook has to offer to to help with that. What did Facebook learn from Instagram? I'm not so sure I'm the best person to, to answer that. I think I can tell you what I think Instagram brought to, you know, its users, but in terms of what did Facebook learn from Instagram? I think that like Facebook and Instagram learned from each other, if that makes sense. It was very clear the simplicity of Instagram was really powerful, right? And it's not something that you can just measure from an A-B test, but it's the, you know, the, the belief in simplicity was, was going to be really powerful. The product, I think, really panned out. In a sense, I think there was things about the social graph that was just different about the two companies. And, and, and with Instagram, the idea of the default being a following, a one-way relationship of what are you interested in versus a reciprocated sort of friendship was just different. I don't think one was better or worse. I mean, as you look at sort of both products, sort of success in the marketplace, I think there's just room for both models, right? You know, there are people like my Instagram feed is very different from my Facebook feed. It's just very different. It's very interest-based and that makes that powerful. And and I use both products, you know, so I don't think there's an either or. I think both uh, products found natural fits in people's lives. Facebook really benefited from a broad lateral expansion when the company was getting off the ground. It built all these different products. It built Messenger and Newsfeed and groups and all these kinds of things. One thing it it did kind of shy away from was the company resume style space that LinkedIn was really dominating it or or am I misremembering it or no I think I think LinkedIn has a place in the product ecosystem just just the same yeah what was it about the fact that LinkedIn was having a lot of success that because like there are other domains where where Facebook just says this is this we must do this like photo sharing it to Facebook decided 
we must solve this problem. We must figure out how to get into the photo sharing market. And, you know, they, they paid what at the time looked like a high price for Instagram in order to get into that market. But the work side of things, it seemed like they were willing to say, okay, we will seed this territory to LinkedIn, right? Do you think that's that's accurate? Was there? I just I just don't think the we were really focused on on that side. And I think you know if you look at taking a look at making the world more open and connected, which again was the was the the mission for the longest time that I was there for the entire time I was there. There was just a lot of work to do, right? There are a lot of different products you could build, and you gotta choose where you focus. And I feel like Facebook focused on the areas that had the best adjacencies of how we can serve our customers in the best possible way. I think that was just the underlying ethos. I, I can't remember any specific discussions one way or the other. It was very much like, yeah, this seems like, yeah, we got to do Messenger. It seems like a really important tool for people to be more connected, right? So that same with groups, same with profiles and the changes we did there, newsfeed. I think it was all along this kind of master strategy that, that Mark had. And I think that that was where we'd focused our, most of our time. So the Instagram product was really capturing something that was extremely popular at the time it was acquired. With the Oculus acquisition, it was more of a bet that this is a consumer trend that is going to take off as the technology improves, as as people adopt it. How did your product management experience in those two products differ from one another? So for me, I'm all about learning new things. Like whenever I take on a new role, it's always probably the biggest part of it is like, am I gonna, what am I gonna learn that's new in, in this gig? And learned a lot from, from Newsfeed, from Messenger, from Instagram. And personally, I think that, you know, for me going over was just uh, how can I learn about hardware development, right? And that whole area. Now, when you take a look at sort of what the, the differences and sort of how product managers have to adapt to their, their field, you have to kind of take any new situation you're put in as a product manager and just start with the kind of most intense beginner's mindset, if that makes sense, that you can, and just soak it all in, right? And get as much kind of learning as you can. So the two products are very different, right? And I think what one quality I look for in product managers that I work with are people who are just naturally curious to learn about things and, and people who come in and spend more time listening to data and what's going on and insights than time pontificating on what the next direction or the vision should be, right? And the folks that I found that don't shoot from the hip, that take a whole month to sit down and just ask questions, you know, what's working, what's not working, you know, what do you see the vision as, et cetera, and just taking an understanding of what the industry looks like, I think that those make the best and the most successful product managers in my experience. So you're right, they are different in terms of what the products were, but you know, any product manager kind of going into a new field or company, any good one will take time to kind of absorb all the information they can before forming an opinion. Does that answer your question? Partially. Okay. D- I, think I mean, I missed it. Were you a, a VR user before you started using Oculus? I was or not a VR joined? user. No. Did you like start dog fooding it a lot? Absolutely. Oh man. Yeah. No. Absolutely. So you know, learning the differences between mobile VR and and desktop VR was a huge thing. I spent many hours at home in the dark. You know, after the kids went down. You know, playing games. And as someone who's a little bit motion sensitive, I, I really fully felt the pain of a lot of folks who, you know, when you dog food your products, you kind of get a feeling for that. So. I, 
there's a lot of a lot of learning to be done. A whole new industry, understanding how content's created, that was new to me as well. So yeah, absolutely for any product manager to get into a situation, you got to fully understand your customer and fully understand your product. So yeah, there's a lot of dogfooding involved. What is like filing a ticket for a VR product look like? Is it like, I got sick here? Like, <laughs> Well, you uh, luckily there's a lot of smart people who are there before me to help guide me through what I might be experiencing and uh, various concepts right? Just understanding, you know, the latency between the display, you know, the various refresh rates of the screens and, and understanding if there's going to be motion, there's blur when you move your head. I had a lot of help in terms of naming those concepts. So I didn't have to come up with them by myself, right? So there's there's that piece in terms of understanding the product at that level. And there's also just like common bugs. It's like, oh yeah, this looked off or, you know, this didn't match my intuition or what whatever it would, would be. There's just different classes of, of issues that we uncovered. How did it differ from a QA person? Like I, I can imagine like a QA person just like sitting there in a chair or sitting there in the dark and just like you playing the game and playing the different experiences and be like, yeah, there's lag here. I mean, was your role more about setting big picture direction for the product? Like what did, yeah. what do you do? It's a great question. So yeah, thank you for asking so directly. A lot of the, uh, what I did there was to work with the team to figure out what is our strategic approach to VR, right? And there was a ton of smart people. I felt like I was more of a remixer and a more of a kind of helping us call out, uh, do we do X first or Y first, et cetera. And at the time we had, you know, we had two products, we had a mobile product and a desktop product. And there was a lot of discussions on how do they get, get them to converge, right? Do we get them to converge? What is the technical capabilities of each of the platforms? What kind of content is necessary for us to be an indispensable part of people's lives, right? Is it just gaming content right now? Or is there some, you know, is there some like metaverse-like kind of social connection? So that's the work that a lot of the product team did when I was there. It wasn't just does the product work or not, but what? how do we sequence our strategy and how do we approach this, this giant promise of VR that was ahead of us? When will the market inflect from game players to... A broader audience. I think in order for productivity to really take off in VR, the resolution's got to get a lot better. And the re in order for the resolution to get a lot better, there needs to be some more advances in sort of either eye tracking or just foveal rendering or just ways that the information can be uh, rendered in a way that it, you can see it very crisply and in a very small, tight field of view. So I think when that happens, you're going to see a lot of, this is just me being armchair VR enthusiast, a lot of more productivity where the world can, you can have your own desktop you know, and, and work on projects or coding or Figma or whatever it might be. So I think productivity is going to be a little bit of time. But again, I leave it to the experts at Oculus to, to give you better predictions on when that's going to happen. Right now, there is a lot of really fun games and entertainment. And, and a lot of what's going to, I think, dictate success for the industry is what is the holistic product feel going to be like? So what is it going to feel like when you have no wires, like the current Oculus headsets that are out there, right? What does battery life look like? How does overheating work? How does the physical comfort of you being experienced work? So there's going to be some, some hurdles to, to cross before I think VR really takes off. Did you still use VR after you stopped? Yeah, I got one of those Oculus Go's. I've yet to still splurge on the uh, on the newest version, but it has been really cool to, to watch sort of my former teammates and, and all the work that they've been doing from afar. So the first productivity app 
do you think it's it's going to be basically this experience where you're just like you have infinite monitors and it's like a better monitor experience? I, or? I think it's going to be about data visualization. I think that's when it's going to be a big unlock. But that's, again, just me being armchair VR enthusiast. As someone who, you know, on a daily basis looks through a ton of different data and tries to make sense of it, there's just a level, extra level of unlock that I think that, that VR could provide to that data visualization, right? So being able to like manipulate data from, you know, a three-dimensional way and just being able to say like, look at charts from, from different perspectives and, and model things differently, I think is going to be one of the biggest uh, productivity unlocks. I also, you know, if you take a look at Edward Tufte's work and stuff in terms of the things he invented, like star, spark lines and all these different data visualization things, I'm not smart enough to tell you exactly what are the, what's the new spark line or what the new visualization is going to be, but I can't imagine that having something you can manipulate in front of you won't change the way that data is going to be displayed. At this point, you've been at Uber for more than two and a half years. Yep. How does the product management experience differ between Uber and Facebook? I think a lot of it's the same. We kind of look after the consumer experience. We look at the business goals and how do we kind of build the best product for the customer and uh, fits into the business goals. I think the biggest difference between the two companies and one of the reasons I was really excited to take on this role is the real world, real time marketplace that we operate in where, you know, like Amazon, you worked at Amazon, Amazon operates in a real world marketplace, but it's not quite real time. Right. And so just that extra minute of a driver and rider not being able to find each other could lead to a pretty bad experience. And you could be stuck in the rain for another five minutes if the driver drove off or, or, or whatnot. Right. And it's not a great experience for the driver to be able to not, not find their next ride either. So I think that was one thing that's been really challenging is to kind of see things from a perspective of this product has to work perfectly and it has to work in real time. And it has to, co to connect these two parts of the marketplace together. Another thing that I think is really interesting about the role at Uber is how much we have to pay very close attention to the unit economics of every single thing we build, right? Because everything, so I'm responsible for the sort of the consumer side. So the writer app is what we call it and all the things that, that kind of uh, ladder up to that. And any small change we want to introduced to the product for from a consumer perspective has to have a change on the driver partner perspective or the marketplace code right so it's very integrated and and thinking about how it all fits together but also the unit economics of every single ride makes the the role incredibly interesting and challenging how often is it is a decision you're making on the rider side of things directly trading off with the driver is it more of a win-win kind of thing or just like a free lunch or is it oftentimes a trade-off i think that what what's magical about the way we work is we have a head of marketplace and a head of driver product and 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 my role and kind of the three roles and there are many other areas within uber but the three of us kind of keep each other honest right but i think it's really important that my counterpart on the driver product advocates fiercely for the driver partners and that I advocate fiercely for the, uh, the, the end customer experience and what will make it really magical. Like remember that first Uber ride you took, like that was magical. And for the marketplace uh, lead to, to, to help us figure out like, okay, well, how do we price this and how do we make sure that this is going to make the marketplace balanced, right? So we do think a lot about each other's areas, but I think the way that we make it all work 
is that we are able to stretch uh, in different and opposing directions, slightly opposing directions to kind of stretch the gamut of the solution space, if that makes sense. Monday.com is a team management platform that brings all of your work, external tools, and communications into one place, making cross-team collaboration easy. You can try Monday.com and get a 14-day trial by going to monday.com slash sedaily. And if you decide to become a customer, you will get 10% off by using coupon code sedaily. What I love most about Monday.com is how fast it is. Many project management tools are hard to use because they take so long to respond. And when you're engaging with project management and communication software, you need it to be fast, you need it to be responsive, and you need the UI to be intuitive. Monday.com has a modern interface that's beautiful to look at. There are lots of ways to use Monday, but it doesn't feel overly opinionated. It's flexible, can adapt to whatever application you need, dashboards, communication, Kanban boards, issue tracking. If you're ready to change the way that you work online, give monday.com a try by going to monday.com slash sedaily and get a free 14-day trial. And you will also get 10% off if you use the discount code sedaily. Monday.com received a Webby Award for Productivity App of the Year, And that's because many teams have used Monday.com to become productive. Companies like WeWork and Philips and Wix.com. Try out Monday.com today by going to monday.com slash sedaily. Thank you to Monday.com for being a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. What you said about the real-time nature of the company... I think that's something I had underestimated, and now I'm thinking back to some of the in- interviews with Uber engineers that I've done. Yeah, a lot of the conversations I've had have been like these really gritty, low-level networking problems and low-level infrastructure problems, and all about lowering latency and getting the infrastructure perfect. And it makes me wonder if, if kind of critics of the company, people who maybe don't see the moat in the company are underestimating the fact that that real time, the difference you pointed out between Uber and Amazon, that real time, that interactivity is very hard to build. I think it's pretty hard to build. (laughs) I haven't tried to build a competitor to Uber, so I can't tell you how hard it is to to overcome, but I think it's pretty hard to build. I think that, and this is what I kind of alluded to, like when I said the the unit, we think a lot about the unit economics, it's not like we're sitting there, you know, oblivious to the user's needs. We're, we're, We're entrenched in the user's needs. We're trying to build that magical product. But in order for the entire magic of the experience that you you experience and maybe it just feels so commonplace now that everyone kind of takes for granted but to make that work there's a lot of a very hard execution that needs to happen along the way right and a lot of systems that have to all line up and you're right latency is a huge thing right so if we have a slow call to the fares stack and we it takes a little bit of time to show you how much your ride is going to cost that's not a magical experience. That's actually just, that's pretty bad, right? And you could be sitting there waiting, maybe you're on low connectivity uh, internet and that doesn't come through. So a lot of these little things really do matter because when people expect the reliability of a service like Uber, you just, you have to deliver every single day. 
And with the focus on unit economics and being so product-focused, do you spend a lot of time talking to Uber economists? or like We have a team of economists internally. We talk to them quite often. But again, the product side of the house, we obsess over the customer experience. It's just we have the added, I think it's the added challenge in, in a good way of thinking about how it's going to affect the business in addition to, to how it's going to affect the, the writer's experience. So yeah, we do have some economists internally. Give me some general tips for designing a two-sided marketplace. I think it's really important that if you're designing a two-sided marketplace, you deeply understand the needs of both sides of the marketplace. And understanding and empathizing with what the goals are of the driver partners that we have, right? And whether it be financial or, or if, they're, if they're driving the platform for the first time or part-time or, or full-time, that is, is you know, really empathizing and understanding what they're looking to get out of the experience as much as you do as on the consumer side is the critical first step. At the end of the day, as product managers, we solve problems. We design solutions to problems. And you can't design a good solution to a problem that you don't fully understand. So I think that would be my first kind of you know, critical piece of advice when you're designing a marketplace is to really understand it. What's in it for the driver partner? What is the the consumer looking to get out of it? And then making sure that they match up and you design the right solution for that. When you think about the, when I think about the long-term vision of, of both Uber and Facebook, one thing that I really like, one thing that makes me optimistic is that both systems are building reputation platforms. Mm-hmm. What kinds of products do you think you could build on Uber? And what kinds of products do you think you could build on Facebook's reputation systems? That is a good question. And so I'm, I'm not going to speculate on what Facebook is going to build or not build. And certainly I can't comment on the future plans of Uber. But I think the fact that you asked that question, you're highlighting some of the most exciting parts about being internal at Uber and working on those things, right? And that's what, you know, we, we look at the opportunity internally and we just really feel like there's a ton more space, a ton more runway to go. And that's what's really cool about working in, in tech in general, right? Because we build uh, capabilities that then enable us to build more capabilities on top of that. And at the end of the day, we're just delivering some pretty awesome products for our consumers and for the world and then kind of changing the world for the better, right? So it's a really good question. I'm not going to speculate on what for one company or the other, but it is ex- exactly the reason why I think we all work in tech. Why do you think it is that our culture, we're comfortable with the reputation systems for consumer loans or for background checks? We haven't yet really gone beyond that for leveraging reputation systems, for establishing credibility and then using that as a, as a lever into other things in a formalized marketplace-style way. Do you think people are just nervous about it or do we not have the tech to do it well yet i don't know maybe you're underselling how much how much progress we've made as a as a technology there's not not we as an uber it's just like the general tech industry right could you imagine when you were growing up like let's say you turned 18 could you imagine your mom being like yeah you should take a ride with a stranger that you have you've never met and you're going to give like our house address and our coordinates to to that person i feel like we've really come a long way in terms of 
just feeling like we can trust each other just a little bit more, right? I'll give you another example. I mean, just let's use just uh, TripAdvisor or, or Yelp as an example, right? When I go to a new city now, whether it's international or uh, here in the United States, I don't feel that level of anxiety that I'm going to go and, and pick a restaurant that's going to be not what I expect, right? And I think that is a pretty big difference if you think back to the 80s of like having like yellow pages and telephone books. And there's a lot of guesswork in terms of what will you expect when you go into this business. And you have these, you know, international brands where the brand becomes a thing that you trust, like uh, McDonald's, like you can expect a certain level of consistency. And don't get me wrong, I love McDonald's myself, but being able to discover what's awesome about a Washington, D.C. hole-in-the-wall spot and being able to do that through Yelp or Foursquare or TripAdvisor is pretty cool. So I think reputation's gotten a way that got gotten to a stage where end consumers benefit, but also I think it changes how people behave as well. Because I think people know that there's a reputation system out there. And then I think that changes behavior a little bit. What did you learn at Facebook in the product management category that you apply at Uber? Well, I feel like I've learned everything I know about product management from Facebook. It's, it's, I, I kind of, I feel like I grew up there in, in a sense professionally. So, I mean, there's too many lessons to, to, I think your podcast will have to be really long for us to go through all of the lessons, but I'll, I'll pick a few. One I think is investing in people. I think that being in a position where you can pick people, the right people to work on your team and investing in the right people to kind of do awesome things. That's one of the things that I think Facebook has really taught me. And looking at the amount of collaboration that's within Facebook, I think that that culture was created not by accident, but by having some strong values in terms of finding people who are just really selfless and are uh, lifelong learners and really want to are curious about the right solution and curious about innovating. That level of you know, growth mindset, I would say, is something that I feel like I've learned through my time is, is to really value, right? So I think that's one thing. I think the other thing is the importance of systems thinking. One thing that Facebook really taught me, especially in the earlier days, is, you know, Facebook was kind of an ecosystem, right? And there were incentives for why people wanted to share something. They wanted to get that feedback, right? And there was incentives for you to come to Facebook to consume things that other people shared. And that kind of seeing that ecosystem brought to life really puts it in context. Because I think as a product manager, it's really easy to kind of design features that you think are cool, but features that really augment an ecosystem and solve the needs of, of, of players in that ecosystem are the ones that are super powerful. Third thing I would say is how to be really clear about the problem you're trying to solve as opposed to just designing te technologies in search of a problem, right? And so at Facebook, we were always very clear about like, you know, the user research showed us this or the, the data showing us that this feature is confusing. And it wasn't a place that people said, wouldn't it be cool if we built this feature? But it was rather a place of, hey, we've identified this problem through our research and the data, and then let's get into a room with smart people and see how we fix it. And speaking of the company as an ecosystem and also thinking about marketplaces, in the interviews that we've done so far, one of the things that I, I learned about was this really elegant system of bootcamp plus headcount. Oh, bootcamp is awesome. Bootcamp is awesome, but also just the idea that you have this gigantic funnel of people always coming in. And then, as I understand, you have this headcount system where there's kind of a centrally planned 
allocation to different teams, here's how many people you can potentially hire. You are still going to have to advocate for your team and sell the team on the people who are coming into boot camp. You have to make your team appealing yeah. to these boot camp people. What I really like about that is I never worked at a tech job for longer than eight months after I left school. And part of the reason for that is because I always felt like my relationship with the company was firstly adversarial. I wow, felt I really? felt like the yeah, I felt like all the companies I worked for like the job postings were misleading. I was not really given work that was like appealing to me. And maybe I'm spoiled, but I was just like, why would I stay here? It doesn't make any sense. And Facebook, I feel from the interviews I've done, assuming I understand that headcount yeah. plus bootcamp system correctly, yeah, yeah. really it has tapped into the idea that you need to build a system that is appealing to your engineers or else they're going to go elsewhere. I'm such a huge fan of that system, but also just, just Facebook culture in general. But that was a really, really awesome design decision made on, on the organizational level. So you're absolutely right. I think the insight there is that fit is a two-way street. I think a lot of people, a lot of companies out there may think of it as like, oh, where can I get resources or talent to do the work that I want them to do, right? But exactly what you said is is, is Facebook's insight of like, you're going to get the best out of your engineers when they are passionate about the work, right? And that it's such a good system because it ensures that only the people that are really sold on your vision and mission are going to join your team. And once they come through the doors and come through boot camp, and what's awesome about that is it basically has this impact on the local teams where your teams just get stronger and stronger and people buy into the vision more and more, and you're able to just execute a much faster clip when everyone's kind of bought in on what, what the work is that you're doing. It also forces the teams to get better at uh, making the work more interesting. Right, and you know everyone wants to be able to come in and have a huge impact, and uh, it's this nice self-balancing thing where if there's a big hole on the ads team, for example, and the next engineer that comes in will have a tremendous chance at a huge chance at a huge impact. That's really appealing for the next person that comes in through boot camp, and so naturally that will probably get filled faster. And it has this really uh, good balancing uh, side effect to it that I think is just it's it's, it's really brilliant and incredibly powerful for the company. Okay, we're almost out of time. What differentiates Mark Zuckerberg as a leader? I think what's oftentimes misunderstood about Mark is he is so deeply committed to the betterment of humanity and I don't think it always comes across right I think that if you take a look at the work that he's done throughout the years of building Facebook he's always had this vision in mind of the world being a better place when there's it, it's more open and connected and I think that what's the most differentiating thing is that he if you take a look at the work that he's doing through the Chan Zuckerberg initiative and all the philanthropical work he deeply believes in that and I think that's oftentimes the thing that's most misunderstood, but I'm not sure that my voice is going to change anyone's opinion, yeah. but I can tell you that if you were asking me that in, in this one-on-one -on -one setting and, and with all your podcast listeners, that's the one thing that I wanted to land. Cause I think, you know, just seeing him as a leader internally. And if you guys haven't already just watch the Q and a that he just live streamed and published last week, right? It's pretty incredible to see how much he really cares. And I think that oftentimes gets lost in translation. I still need to watch that. I, I mean, I saw the 
like link baity article around it, but it they they break up the audio into ways that make it hard to consume. So I need to just find the live stream and, and watch it. Well, that it's, it's it's on Facebook, so you can just go, exactly. and go click through it. I recommend you watch it. It's very cool to see. And, and as someone who was in the company, that is what it's like to work inside the company and see him lead. And it kind of gives every it will give everyone like a good glimpse in, into the company culture and, and what he's like as a leader. I agree with you, by the way. I mean, I'm a fan of his work. I'm a fan of Facebook. Like <laughs> products are awesome. Yeah. I, don't, I think people are like losing sight of that. Like yeah, I agree. pretty good products. I, yeah. I guess, I guess you had a hand in that. Well, I, I was fortunate to be a part of it. I'll put it that way. So, Okay. Peter Dang, thanks for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. As a programmer, you think in objects. With MongoDB, so does your database. MongoDB is the most popular document-based database built for modern application developers and the cloud era. Millions of developers use MongoDB to power the world's most innovative products and services, from cryptocurrency to online gaming, IoT, and more. Try MongoDB today with Atlas, the global cloud database service that runs on AWS, Azure, and Google Cloud. Configure, deploy, and connect to your database in just a few minutes. Check it out at mongodb.com atlas. That's mongodb.com slash atlas. Thank you to MongoDB for being a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. Daily.